0: Well, good to see you guys. Thanks for coming out. We have those fans going, so they're rather loud. Uh, so I'll try to talk loud. Can you hear me? <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> okay, talking about Paul. Boy, Paul's been quite the subject. Uh, Paul has been mostly free in his um, journeys. We know that he has been in jail before, but, it, you know, it's not lengthy. Uh, So for the most part, since Acts chapter 9, and we're all the way up to Acts 21, and we know that he's been wandering around under the Spirit's direction, going from place to place, and uh, we know he was a prisoner, not for uh, any length of time really, Uh, in Philippi, he was in jail there, and uh, the Lord knew it wasn't time for him yet, so he sent an earthquake along, and... Got him out of there. And, uh, of course, we know that uh, the whole jail could have fallen apart, and, and uh, but God kept it together there. So, uh, he's been free most of the time. But in chapter 21 is where he becomes like a full-time prisoner. Uh, in, a, in a full-time sense. And he's going to give six separate defenses to the end of the book really is what it's going to come down to because we see a defense here where there is the mob concerned in Jerusalem. Then you have the council there in uh, Jerusalem. Then you have before the governors Felix and Festus. Then you have him before the king. And uh, then you have... I think I said there. Uh, He's before the Jews. Uh, three cities that uh, he is going to be involved in as far as his uh, arrest is uh, concerned. That's uh, Jerusalem and uh, Caesarea and Rome. And so that's going to take up uh, really most of the the rest of the book here and revolves around that. What he does as he defends himself, he uses this as uh, an opportunity to uh, present the truth, the truth of the gospel. And uh, that's what he's done. That's what he continues to do all through his ministry. So he really focuses on that. So now we come to the first of these defenses and it's like how can you give a positive testimony in such terrible negative circumstances? And that could probably be the title from here on out because he just continues to make the best of these negative situations. And of course, we get to watch a man who, who did it. And of course, um, when you think of this man, Paul and other godly men, and we've been looking at the conviction that Paul had, we saw also his courage. And um, I think tonight, as we look at this text, we're going to see his boldness as he will um, give his, start his defense. Uh, it will continue on in, in the next chapter. But uh, I don't think Paul ever viewed his situation as anything other than what God had sent him. He realized that God is behind all this. God authors everything, doesn't He? He's behind it all when it's ultimately said and done. So, And he never really viewed his imprisonment as imprisonment by men. Even though God used men, it was still... He was the prisoner of who? Prisoner of Christ. I think we uh, even talked about that in our study in 2 Timothy, because when he wrote that, of course, he was in Rome in prison there. So he's always a prisoner of, of Christ as far as he's concerned. In, um, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, and And I think that's the way it looks at in Philippians, he says, "My bonds are in Christ; they're manifest in all the palace. you remember um, oh in in our second Timothy, where we've been at on on Sundays, I think it was in chapter one that we saw a section dealing with that um, or it's in chapter two, maybe, yeah. I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, to, as far as they're concerned, but the Word of God is not imprisoned. So he talks about that. So He knows that this is all about Christ. It's all about uh, the gospel, the truth. The gospel is not bound, is it? The gospel is not bound at all. So we move towards verse 27 of chapter 21. Paul has arrived in Jerusalem. The Jewish Christians are there in Jerusalem and they heard that he was a little bit subversive um, and so there were some negative tones um, as far as the Jewish people were concerned and they had heard that he was anti-Jewish that he had given up on all the Jewish customs and the ceremonies and the traditions the law but the thing is Paul was very much Jewish he, he was Jewish and uh, we know that he comes to Jerusalem. What time of the year is it? What what feast is it? Pentecost. Pentecost. And he had taken a Nazarite vow. And so all of those things, you know, he still is in practicing, or at least he does it there. So it's not like he threw out all the tradition at that moment, but um, when you think of the Judaizers, they're going around saying he's... Um, anti-Jewish. Uh, look, he's bringing in his Gentile buddies. Oh, they're all coming in there and they're packing this one house. And really, he has a purpose of bringing the money, right? The money they collected from among the Gentiles to bring it to the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And then also to just to show the kind of love and fellowship that uh, the, the Jews are, are experiencing from the Gentile church. So there's... Um, reasons that that he's doing this but um, people are thinking that he's trying to cause problems and so in order to uh, keep his reputation up this is where we are at last week they had him go to the temple to fulfill the Nazarite vows that he had taken and to take four other guys and he was supposed to pay the bill for the whole thing the sacrificial animals and such and you would think, okay, with that, that should be enough to lead the people to believe that he was not against some of their customs and traditions because he's doing it and he is having others do it. Now it might have had some effect on the Jewish Christians, but on the Jewish non-Christians, it had no effect at all. Matter of fact, they even use it uh, and uh, cause a mob scene and uh, lies. And that's how they uh, get, try to get to him to actually kill him. And when you have a mob, it's really like a, uh, a body with no head. Um, we've seen some of those on TV and other cities around, starting with Ferguson and now other places. Absolute chaos. So they're no different than any other mob. They're just, It's just wild and uh, people become maniacs. They don't even really have any idea of what's going on. They just hear something, somebody says something, and they're ready to get in on it. And these people are trying to murder the Apostle Paul. I mean, to absolutely kill him right there uh, during this time of this feast. But they don't have the foggiest idea of what they're doing. It's going along with the crowd. But that's typical. That's, that's the way a mob works. So, that's where we're at, that's where we're set up, and uh, we'll get into the attack of the mob. Let's, uh, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit, the power of your Word, and as we gather here tonight, may we learn further how you work and how you work through your people and how you give us courage, how you give us boldness, steadfast conviction, and as we um, continue on in this book of Acts, we know that uh, this history is more than just uh, a story, but uh, the power that's there and the principles that uh, we can glean from, and we see, again, how your sovereign hand works. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm well, pick it up in verse 27. <clears throat> Says when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him. They supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, taking hold of Paul. They dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up uh, to the commander. Take it to 31. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So we'll take it through there, 27 through 31. This is called the Attack of the Mob, Part One, and uh, it starts off when the seven days were almost ended. Now you remember, there's a there's a particular Nazarite vow. Of course, Paul has been on that. It's a Jewish custom. It's a way to express uh, your thanks, your gratitude to God for maybe a special deliverance, or just uh, being thankful to Him and concentrating on Him, um, being separated to Him in a special way. And there's a seven-day purification that, that is to happen. So that's, that's what's been going on. The seventh day, you, you offer the sacrifices, and uh, that's that was what was going to be done. That's what Paul was going to be uh, paying for, uh, some of it there. Uh when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews who were of Asia—now that's not uh, like China or anywhere in the uh, in the Far East—but it's talking about Asia Minor. When you think of Asia Minor, that reminds us of a place called Ephesus, and Smyrna, Philadelphia, Thyatira. Revelation chapter two and three; those seven churches are there. That's the the area. And, of course, Paul had been there uh, on a couple of journeys, if you remember. So, these are the guys that are showing up here and starting this, the Jews from Asia. They knew of him. And they knew of some of the people that were with him. Wouldn't you think that they recognized him? How many years had he spent in Ephesus? Three years? Something like that? And I think he had a dramatic effect on Ephesus, and we know he established a church there. He taught night and day, uh, constantly taught at a school during the day. Uh, Tyrannus, and there's all sorts of havoc that was started in the synagogue after uh, being there uh, a short term, a few months. And so um, we notice that Trophimus is mentioned down in verse 29. For they, and that's the Asia Minor people. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city or Jerusalem with him. So they know they know Trophimus from Ephesus. But they know Trophimus. They know Paul. Uh, so they they know what they're doing. It's funny those guys have tracked them down all the way into this time of this feast. So definitely connections with with Ephesus and. Um, We know that um, Paul in the synagogue had made such um, havoc (laughs) amongst them. A lot of people really mad. So you have Asia Minor Jews, and they really saw their opportunity. You have a great big crowd, and when you have a big crowd, all sorts of things can happen. And not everybody, not hardly anybody, is going to really see what happens unless you really get other people stirred up. So They couldn't accomplish it in Ephesus. You remember that when that happened? There was a riot there even. There was uh, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. And of course, Paul had to wind up getting out of there. Uh, so now they've got an opportunity to get back at him. They, they've got him all the way. They travel all the way from Asia Minor. That's how bad they want him. So when they saw him in the temple... They saw him in the temple. They start stirring up the people. That's what it says in the verse 27. These Asia Jews, Asia Minor, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him. Imagine that. They they they've got a hold of him now. And what they uh, what it means here is they stirred up all the crowd. They they confused him. That's the the literal meaning, a confusing of the mob. Mobs are always confused. (laughs) This is confused people. This causing trouble. So they stir up this confusion that this mob is having, and you'll notice that they start crying, crying out, yelling. Men of Israel, come to our aid. Help! What are they doing that for? They've got this one guy. There's quite a few of these Jews that are surrounding him and they got a hold of him where he can't get away and they're yelling to all the rest of the people they don't need any help for holding him down so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've they got him but okay feast of Pentecost and there have been uh, many commentators say there could be as many as two million people at this feast even if it's only a million <laughs> you got a huge crowd huge crowd and you have a mob and a mob scene you're at a festival what better place than to have this opportunity that they have to do what they want to do and uh, so this is what they're doing they're they're asking for people to come over here and check this out and they're going to start telling why and this kind of help that would be at at the, um, the temple would be for the fact that there's been some kind of blasphemy that's been done. That's what they want to charge him of. And this sounds like what happened to Jesus some 25 years before this. Uh, Some kind of defamation on the character of God whenever they're saying help. That's the idea. That's what they're doing. Uh, Some kind of maybe defamation of the character of Moses maybe. God and then Moses right underneath right, to, the, to the Jews. So um, some kind of slander has occurred, the way that they're making it out to be, some, some kind of desecration of the sanctuary. Something dreadful has happened right there at the temple as far as they're uh, concerned. And what they're going to do is try to make him out to be anti-Semitic. <laughs> the guy himself is a Jew. He went into the Jews' temple he went in there doing sacrifices. He went, he went in doing different things that Jews always did and they want to try to establish the anti-Jewish thing. So they, they start off with crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere, all over the world. who preach." That's right, he does preach to all men everywhere against our people. He starts with that against the Jews and there's the anti-Semitism that he starts cooking up and um, that's quite an accusation Um, the thing is the Jews have never been able to live with the fact that people convert to Christianity they convert because they believe in the Messiah their Messiah and so they get all bent up out of shape as a matter of fact, they connected their religion to their race in such a way that you couldn't separate that. Now we've got a, a a real problem here because if they can make him out to be not favoring the Jewish people, you can turn a lot of people against him real quickly. And it's happening there at the temple. It's like he's blasphemed. And the real rebels against Judaism are the people who don't believe in the Messiah who had come for them. All right? An unbelieving Jew who will not trust in the Messiah. That is a rebel because of rebelling against the very word of God. But he's the one to be made out that way. So they, they first have accused him of um, speaking out against the people. And another thing is that, that would uh, flip everybody out would be the fact that he spoke against the law. Which, he never spoke against the law. He was in favor of the law. He knew what the law did. The law doesn't say, but it sure condemns a man, which is what it's supposed to do. And of course, you look in Romans' first three chapters, and, and uh, of course we think of uh, chapter 7. Uh, the law is good, he says in Romans 7. But, um, so that's what um, they're saying. He's against the people. He's against the law. What's the third one that they say? And this place. What's that? The temple. That's that's where he's been at the last seven days. And, um, he hasn't really said anything against the temple. So they make these things up. And the accusations, I think, are really uh, they're general, general accusations. You really can't. What can you do with that? They they can't really do anything with it unless they they build this thing up. So what they do now is right on top of all of this. So they don't have any facts to, to for any of this that they've said, but they try to put the cherry on the top. And besides, or you. Listen to this one. It's like, this is the worst. He has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now those, those guys that he's been bringing in there, they're not Gentiles. They're not Greeks. They're Jews. And they're the ones who are making this, the same kind of offering that he is as, he, as Nazarite vow. Um, but they say they're Greeks. There wasn't a shred of evidence for that. Can you see the out-and-out lies that they say? But this is going to get out amongst a a rioting-type people. It it seems that truth really doesn't matter. Whatever's been put forth, it must be true coming from whoever's there uh, accusing And it says in 29, For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city, with him. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So if Trophimus was around, he must have brought him into there. That must have been. Accusing somebody with no facts whatsoever, just thinking, I bet that's what he's done. (laughs) And it's going to get out to the people. No evidence. They're just assuming assuming for their own case. Um, would Paul have done something like that? Well, he's doing a Nazarite vow. Another thing, I think he would have been real stupid to have done something like that after doing all that he's done and, and doing the Jewish thing that would maybe make some of the people happy around there and make them feel a little more comfortable and to haul a Gentile in the temple, he knows. He knows that you you don't do that. Now, at the temple, there is the the first of all, there's the court of the Gentiles. It's the furthest away, and that was um, made for the fact that people who were outside the Jewish race had some kind of access. They couldn't go into the temple, couldn't bring those sacrifices like the people did, but they could go up to a certain point, and they could go there and pray. And um, that's, that's a good witness to the world. And um, so that, that's a good thing. It's a biblical thing. Then there's the court of the women. They go a little bit further. That would be the Jewish women. Then you have the men who are the ones that can go almost right up to the front. And then you have the priests who ministered in the temple daily. And then you had the high priest once a year who went all the way into the Holy of Holies. So there's the kind of divisions that, uh, that was made out for them. Well, the thing is, is that you can't bring a Gentile in there and him live after that. It has been discovered in 1871 and in 1935 by archaeologists they actually had uh the these signs discovered and they were written in two languages latin and greek that is that was the latin for the roman people the greek for all the gentiles greek was like what our language english is today it was the most common and so those two languages pretty well do it and so if you have a Gentile that's coming in there he's not going to read Hebrew but he's going to read what? either Latin or Greek and here's what this said on, uh, along the pillars uh, there's a barricade there and so here's what they discovered it said this no man of alien race outside of Judaism aliens, is to enter within the barricade that goes around the temple and if anyone is taken in the act, let him know that he has himself to blame for the penalty of death that follows. That meant death. And it evidently happened. Um, but if a Gentile went in there, that's what would happen. Uh, the Romans honored that law. And so they didn't want any kind of political scenes happening in there. They want, the Romans want to keep peace in Jerusalem, especially at the time of a, a big festival like this. And they knew that if some Gentile could come in there, he could bring his Gentile religion, he could bring his, his idols, his gods in there and just desecrate it. So the Jews had a good reason never that they could come in there. There was a stopping point and anything beyond that is an intrusion and the Romans would be the ones that would kill that Gentile who would walk in. To the temple that's what they're charging now um, the only thing is Paul couldn't have been killed for going in there anyway because he's a Jew but they want to kill Paul for bringing in a Gentile even if he did they can't kill Paul because it is on this particular Gentile if that had been the case because he has himself to blame for the penalty of death that follows. So, right there, they're they're wanting to kill him because he brought a Gentile in. Not true, but even if he did, they still can't kill him. Shouldn't. Um, The Gentiles are the ones that would be violating it. Confusion, the mob, they're doing whatever they're doing. It's just like any other mob. It goes out of hand. It gets crazy. So, what are we? Um, We at verse 30? Then all the city was provoked. So all they had to do was talk about Paul bringing in the Gentile into the temple. What a lie. Then all the city was provoked. The people rushed together. They ran together. Can you imagine this? Taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple. Now he's been there somewhere in the temple precincts. It's a time of feast. The whole city is is just... uh, just going crazy anyway. I mean, it's a a joyous time. It's outdoors. People milling around all over. Things are going on. So all these people just ran together. They draw him out of the temple. They get him out of there. And once the doors are shut, that's when they want to kill him. Because if you shut the doors, the people will continue to worship while on the outside, they'd be killing Paul, and that would justify it because, oh no, we don't want to kill him in the temple. They're doing everything illegal. Does this sound something like what happened to Jesus? By the way, all of this is in that same area. They'd want to make sure that they got him out of there so they could go and worship God, while at the same time they're killing God's uh, anointed apostle here. This is amazing how they do this. And this is what they did at the trial of Jesus. Um, Oh, that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings. Boy, he's experiencing it here, isn't he? He must have remembered the prophecy that was given to him. Or prophecies. (laughs) About being arrested. Uh, And so, there's the attack of the mob here. And I think we have to say behind the scenes is the providence of God. Because we look at that in everything, don't we? And I think that's what we want to get out of this uh, tonight more than anything. We know about it, but it's nice to be reminded. This looks like the worst thing that could be happening to Paul ever. But the life of Paul was not over yet because God was not done with him yet. Have you seen those bumper stickers? Remember that? God is not finished with me yet. <laughs> I guess that's the way it was with, with Paul there. God had some more days for him to extend his ministry. And he was going to be speaking in front of governors and kings. <laughs> Incredible. Okay, that's the uh, the attack of the mob. Shall we go to part two? Uh, which color can I use now? I haven't done green yet. This will be the arrest by the Romans. I think another reason why I haven't done the outlines it is um, it's like a story that just flows so much we don't really have to break it down too much um, but we can take it apart this way we'll just do major parts and I'm not going to quit doing the outlines. Uh, okay, now, uh, we pick it up, verse 31. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. That's a good report, that's right. And once he took alongside some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul then the commander came up took hold of him ordered him to be bound with two chains there we go remember the the binding that uh, the prophet Agabus was telling about and he began asking who he was and what he had done he's asking the crowd because they figure there must be good reason why they're doing what they're doing well that makes sense doesn't it he must have really done something to really make them mad Yes, <laughs> so he, has, he hasn't even done anything. He hasn't even said anything. manor came up, took a bowl uh, again, asking what was done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing; they're all answering, and then some another. That's what those kind of crowds do. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs. He was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting, "What? Away with him! Or kill him! Kill him!" Okay, Get arrested by the Romans. You have Fort Antonio, has a great tower. It is situated on a precipice that you can look down upon the temple. And there's a reason why they built that there. Because they want to be able to see what's happening down there. Because you get uh, feasts like this, the big festivals, millions or hundreds of thousands of people coming in. And you really have to get the security up. The level has to be pretty very high. And so they had a clear observation of the temple court as they could look down from this garrison. And the garrison, there's a thousand soldiers, thousand Roman soldiers. And they're very highly trained, they're very skilled, and they can handle situations like this. And I'm sure there had been, uh, there had been actually in history, there had been... Uh, different kind of mobs and riots and that kind of thing. You get people together, whether they're Jews, Gentiles, or whoever, and uh, they tend to get unruly sometimes. The one thing that was really great about the Roman government is that they did not put up with civil disorder. They would not allow that to happen. They, They would not tolerate it whatsoever so they would bring out their big guns best that they had at the time so they have this observation tower they're watching people congregating around that temple courtyard watch out when if you see something at all be ready to uh to to react this is on the northwest wall of the temple yard so the soldiers are looking down all of a sudden it says there in verse 31 they they saw what was uh what was going on and uh, Paul is being sought out to kill. I mean, it's it's not going to be very long before he's a dead man. I mean, they're just beating him probably to a pulp already. So the soldiers get on this thing real quick and um, you have the chief captain of uh, of the band there. Once he took along some soldiers and centurions, um, now he's a commander. There's a, The commander means a commander of a thousand. This particular commander is. There are the ones that are centurions and they're a commander of how many? 100, right? So he's the the big top dog of all this. And so he's charging them to go after him, uh, take care of this. Um, It's it's like a riot squad. They know what to do. A lot of big deal is going on. And um, actually he has given a name in chapter twenty-three, his name is Claudius Lysias, and that's that's his name. He has a very considerable character about him, uh, written in, just known in history. Um, so he he's a man of character, uh, ability. He acts immediately. He can't have uh, unrest in any of the cities in the Roman Empire. And uh, we know that this uh, Jewish religion has caused uh, some stirs down through the years. Claudius is standing up and then he's sending the soldiers and they're just barreling out into the crowd now. And they just stopped beating Paul. They could have let it go and it probably wouldn't have been long and Paul would have been a dead man. They were pummeling him. They they were pounding him. They were doing everything. They, They were kicking him and hitting him. Everything you can imagine. The same kind of thing that uh, was happening to Jesus whenever they had some shots to get in. And um, so, now he has an idea who this guy might be. That's a thing. It's an idea. He doesn't know, but he has an idea. And so he says, I'm going to make a formal arrest here and find out what the charges are. So, you know, he, he arrests him right there. He didn't He didn't know, but certainly the people must be doing something uh, to him because he's guilty he's guilty of something <laughs> but yet he's a Roman and he's a Roman of good character and Romans are known for their justice they wanted justice as good as they can get <laughs> so this guy wants to find out what the demands are of him uh, there are accusations going out he can't hear what they're saying There's, it's just that crazy it's, it's just loud and uh, some cried one thing and some another. It's not making any sense. And that whole multitude. Uh, verse 34 says, Among the crowd, some were shouting one thing, some another. And then he could not find out the facts because of the uproar. So he, he brings him to the barracks there. And uh, everybody's hollering, going crazy. Matter of fact, the soldiers have to put him over their heads and carry him. Away from them, because the people are wanting a piece of him. You know, they're wanting—they're wanting to grab out and hit him, or pull, tear, grab, whatever they can do with the man. I mean, they just hate him. And so if somebody asked him why, they couldn't even say. They don't know. He's against the Jews. Oh, what, what did he do? What did he say? Well, I don't know. That's what I heard. I'm ready to shove him out. <laughs> Pushing, shoving and screaming that people are doing and then they're saying away with him, away with him. Uh means killing. Killing. Ah Pink. <laughs> okay. Now we come to what we know as he's he's been arrested. Now, this is going to lead into the whole thing going to Rome and everything, but it's the defense by Paul. He could have just been silent and said nothing. He hasn't said anything yet. I think he's been very patient, but I think now he's going to use some wisdom. And I'm just going to skip into chapter 22, verse 1, just for a moment. Then we'll come back to verse 37. This is where he addresses them, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. Hear my apologia. Hear my apology. Now, apology, we know in the Greek, it means to give a reason for the behavior or what you believe. Peter uses that word, doesn't he? be always ready to give a defense or apologia apologetics that's how the word apologetics comes from um, that's to speak in behalf of in, in, the, in the Greek here so he, that's what he's doing that he's giving a defense so verse 37 says that Paul was about to be brought into the barracks he said to the commander may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? (laughs) Blows the commander away. We'll we'll come back to that in a moment. Then you're not the Egyptian who sometime ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the Assyrians out into the wilderness? I I thought that was you. Paul said, I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission... Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand, and there was a great hush. He spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, and "It goes into chapter 22. Um, this is rather interesting. Now, Greek is the language of the culture. That is the known language, and uh, of course anybody who had been educated, Anybody who had been outside of uh, Jerusalem and educated elsewhere would know Greek. Uh, The thing is, a common rebel rouser, like that's what this commander was thinking of as far as Paul is concerned, it blew him away. Because he did not expect him to... Come out with a cultured language like Greek, and to speak that, he comes on a language where he can identify with this commander, because he's expecting him to be speaking probably Aramaic or something of that nature, or Egyptian. Verse thirty-eight says, "Then you're not the Egyptian who some time ago started up a revolt. I thought that's who you were. Here came this guy." Now, this was about in uh, 54 A.D. Whenever an Egyptian leader, uh, a rebel rouser, he got something like about 4,000 assassins. In our time, we would know those assassins as... What is it? There we go. Right there. Now, he... He was uh, probably made some kind of a deal with the Jews or he, he was on the Jewish side as far as being against the Romans. And so he had a bunch uh, and sometimes the numbers are different. Josephus reports something different but I think the Bible is always correct so we'll go with those 4,000. But it, it historically happened there was definitely something to this. But... Um, Anyway, he wreaked havoc in Jerusalem getting a bunch together and he was going to take on uh, a lot of the the Romans that were there. And even Jews who were on the Roman side. And we know there were. Uh, the Sadducees, they were really uh, on the side of uh, the Romans in, in much uh, in many senses. So what happened is that the Romans got wind of that and they took care of his, most of his uh, people that was with him, but a few of them escaped, and he did too. So they didn't get him as being the leader. They went underground. And what they would do is they would come into Jerusalem, Passover, Pentecost, uh, some of the other feasts, other times when people come around there, what they would do is kill one person at a time. And they'd have their daggers. And amongst a crowd, you can take a dagger and nobody would ever know what was going on, especially the people yelling and all sorts of things going on. You can kill people that way, and that's what they did. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yeah, right. And that is called an assassin or a terrorist. A little bit here, a little bit there. An Egyptian. That thing's been going on for years, hasn't it? It's no different. So they'd assassinate people and then they'd just fade into the crowd and nobody would know any better. That's what was what was happening. And that that's what he was doing and they knew about that. They were looking for those those kind of guys. And with that best security that they could possibly have... Uh, they're on alert for this guy or some of his own people. So the assumption is of this commander. That's him. This is the guy. This is what this is what happened. They caught him. And so when he first sees him, he says, "Oh, great! We, we've got him!" And all of a sudden, Paul talks in in Greek. He's not some kind of Egyptian rebel rouser, but he is one who now is making sense of this man and all of a sudden he's, he's getting uh, a little bit different air of what was going on. And uh, so you can imagine living at that time and, and the slaughter of one Jew at a time or one Roman, you know, going down. It would be pretty, uh, pretty scary, wouldn't it? So he's shocked. This is not the Egyptian. And there's no way he could be cultured enough to, to, to speak the Greek that he did. And so Tarsus, or Paul of Tarsus, as, as he's going to say here, Paul said, I am a Jew. I'm not an Egyptian. I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia. And he makes a big deal about Tarsus. And it is a big deal. Because it's a major city. It's not some small, punk little village yeah. It's a big city of great culture. And it was, um, he's a Roman citizen. And you have art there, you have education. And he's speaking Greek. And so Paul tells him, hey, I'm not that Egyptian. I'm not even with that crowd. Here's where I'm from. And he would have known, oh, wow, you're from Tarsus? And the way that he's speaking, he's proving himself that. And so he says, permit me to, to speak. I'm a Roman citizen. And so he appeals to this commander being from Tarsus, which is out in the Roman Empire. It's not really a Jewish city, is it? And You have to like the wisdom of Paul. He's not lying, because that's where he's from. Later on, though, when he addresses the Jews, he'll also say that he... Kind of grew up or came up through in Jerusalem, and 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 he speaks in their dialect, and uh, he's a you know he wants to appeal to the sense of Gamaliel, you know he was um, taught by him, so he uses what he needs to do, and it's all true, so he can allow himself get permitted to be able to. Uh, to actually preach the gospel. <laughs> Even though he's defending himself, he's not really defending himself, he gets the opportunity in the the worst of situations. So you see where God is at. I don't know how many people there are around at this time, right there, but it's, it's at probably the most prime place you could be at Jerusalem. We're, we're right at the temple. And, um, by the way, when it says that... Um, He's speaking in the Hebrew dialect. That's the language of the Hebrew people. And at that time, it's been 400 years since the last revelation of God when it comes up by the time of the Messiah. People were actually speaking Aramaic at that time. And that was really the language that he used. It was was that dialect. It was the the language the Hebrews spoke, even though today the Hebrew is still around. But the common Hebrew person, that's what they spoke. And so when he's speaking to these people, it's a language that they can understand. He's just speaking Greek here to this one guy, and now he comes over here and he's going to speak uh, in in this. So I think this is rather uh, fascinating how God uses this situation. God's all in this as He allows man to do what he's going to do it's it's like Jesus whenever those men are held responsible for what they did with Jesus but at the same time it was predetermined by God for that to happen now try to wrap your mind around that sovereignty of God goes way beyond our finite minds doesn't it two things this is how we close the first thing that's what we've been talking about see the situation that you're in that God is sovereign in it. Um, It's a situation that God can allow you to use for a positive. And then Paul said, I don't count my life dear to myself. Remember he said that earlier in in Acts here. Um, None of these things really move me. (laughs) You know, I'm here for one thing for the glory of God. The gospel be spread. Um, I think he said that in Acts 20, 24. And what can happen to us and the average person, why is God doing this? Why have you forsaken me, God? Where are you? What are you doing? Why do you let the devil do this to me? And that's a natural response. But a supernatural response says, okay, I don't like the situation I'm in. I don't have to like that. But God has me here for this time being so that I can continue to give the witness of Him, however that may be, for His glory. Accepting that situation from God. Number two, a second thing, is that this is an opportunity. Accept it from what God has and now make the best of it, this opportunity. Um, look in First Peter two nineteen. Get ready to close it out here. This this comes from Peter. Matter of fact, this whole chapter or uh, the whole book, almost every chapter has something about this. In two nineteen, it says, "For this finds favor if, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly." For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. There is the example of Christ. That's an extreme example. Um, have we ever thanked the Lord for our grief? Have we ever been abused by the world? Have we ever been knocked around because of the sake of the Christian faith? And still yet realize that I don't like that necessarily, but thank you, Lord. This evidently was your will. You've been called for this purpose. <laughs> um, chapter 3. Just another... The next chapter there, verse 17. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And in chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you but the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Rejoicing, sufferings... Huh.
1: <laughs> then James chapter 1 verse 2. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, exactly. not very, that's not very pleasant. That's not giving us a good life now. I know. I know. I mean, uh, does that make you want to go start a bunch of churches and tell people all that? No.
0: Yeah, nobody's going to come, are they? they? (laughs) I know. Seems like I've been saying this, and we've been saying this for the past several weeks. Sunday, yeah.
1: yeah. It's just... (laughs) But you're right.
0: And you go take that to the average person, and they're not going to want to hear it. But if God has tuned their ears to it, because the gospel, it's telling about a man who died. It's for good. Of all
1: those for eternity. That's right. And they didn't get rich. They,
0: they all did. That's right. Not many naive. Mighty. mighty.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Keep on doing what you're supposed to be doing. God is uh, controlling this thing. Good. How do you make a positive testimony in a negative situation? <laughs> you accept the situation realize that God's in control on this, and if you're his, believe me, he's gonna make good out of this and number, so number two, you see it as a a great opportunity
1: yeah, because
0: That sounds like right out of Romans 5 there. Yeah, it's not a popular thing. I can see why. I can understand humanly. But God's way is certainly totally different than the way that man thinks. And that's what He's planned to do. That's how He does it. The gospel. What truth. But He always anchors it on that good news and poor it's it, It's worth it even here and now, you know in the sense that there's nothing like being in the body of Christ and knowing what uh, who Christ is right now, but then knowing that in the future what lies ahead in, in the eternity and the reward that comes with that.
1: Well, you know, with the suffering, what that suffering is all about. You know, we just don't suffer just to suffer. There's something to be gained out of that suffering that God grants Right.
0: Us. We certainly don't want to bring it on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's enough of it the way it is.
1: <laughs> but what, right. the gospel is where it better. has to be, though. Do
0: you need to become bitter, or are you are ungrateful. Yeah. Thank yeah. okay. So, that leads us up into the next chapter and the story that he has. Thank you, guys. Did I talk loud enough over the fan? Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You see my two fans? That's my fans. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Sorry.